U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the XO, Christoph. Hey, buddy. Hey, Dale. Uh, good to be back. Very excited to see where we travel today. Well, I can tell you it's the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. The Boston Campaign. Okay. And we're going to start with the Battle of Machias. Not one that I'm familiar with. Yes. But yes, I'm excited to learn. Then learn we shall. You ready to get away? Oh, yes, sir. Let's do it. So the Battle of Machias, it was also known as the Battle of Margarita. This was the first naval engagement of the American Revolution. This was around June 11th through 12th in Dubai. And as you can probably imagine, it was around the port of Machias. And that is what is now Eastern Maine. Oh, I like so, to call that the nose. The nose. The nose nose. Look at Maine. It looks like a little head and it's got a little nose. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. So, <laughs> <laughs> on June 2nd, 1775, Jones's ship arrived in the port at Machias. While the Margarita was delayed taking in guns from the Halifax, the Jones met resistance to allow him to sell his pork and flour, unless he was also allowed to load lumber for Boston. They held a meeting on June 6th, and the townspeople voted against doing business with So now we're in a hostile atmosphere. And this makes Jones ask more to bring the margarita within firing distance of the town. So this prompted the town to have another meeting. This time, they voted to allow him to trade. And then they brought in the unity and docked it at the... Well, you know what they say. You can get a lot further with uh, pork flour and a gun than just uh, pork and flour. Yeah. So... After the second vote, Jones, he announced that he would only do business who had voted in of trade with his lobster bag. And this angered those who had against him. So a guy named Colonel Benjamin Foster, who was a local militia leader, conspired with the militia from neighboring towns to capture Captain Jones. Their plan was to seize him at the church on June 11th. This failed when he noticed the group men approaching the building. You know, you see a group of armed men walking towards you, and you are the enemy. Yeah, Jones ran into the wood. That's, that's a smart move. He emerged two days later. So Moore was his second in command, and he was also attending the church services. He did manage to get back. So some of the militiamen, they boarded the and removed the remaining supplies. But they also took her sails. That's a pretty important part of the ship. And the lightest, probably, that you could take off. Oh, sails are heavy. Well, I mean, removing a mast might be trickier. Well, yeah, that's more complicated. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sails, very heavy. I, 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 I should have been speaking relatively. Continue. <laughs> anyway, no sails, no... No, no, no sail. <laughs> um, so others went around by land near 
the place where the Margarita was anchored, and they demanded that she surrender. Moore, of course, refused and threatens to fire onto the town. Now, this threat was really just more bluster than it was a real threat, because Margarita only had a couple of mounted guns capable of firing one-pound shot. Uh, some more of the militiamen rode out to the Polly, which was anchored downstream from the Margarita, and attempted to tow her into the harbor. Really? Yes. This failed because she ran aground, more than likely due to low tide. Moore raised anchor on the Unity and came alongside the Polly. They wanted to, you know, of course, recover her, pull her off of right. the, yeah, pull her off of the bank and get her refloated. There was a brief exchange of gunfire that really didn't amount to anything, but this was with the militiamen on the shore. He got scared, raised anchor again, further down until he was safe. Now, the next day, the men of the Machias regrouped. Foster took about 20 men to East Machias, where they commandeered the foul-mouthed packet, local schooner. The remaining men commandeered the unit. They re-rigged her and installed some planks as a makeshift breastwork to serve as armor. Breastwork, generally. Breastwork. It is a fortification. It's you. This term is applied to temporary fortification. A lot of times you would hear that on land as earthworks thrown up, thrown up to about breast high. Yeah. And that's why it's breastwork. Oh, okay. And, Makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, on warships, the breastwork refers to the armored superstructure in the middle of the ship that did not extend all the way out to the sides of the ship. So, these uh, guys that commandeer the Unity, they arm themselves with muskets, pitchforks, and axes. And they set sail and went after the Margarita. Uh, the Margarita, at this time, had reached the waters of Machias Bay. More, he brought aboard a guy named Captain Toby to serve as a pilot. So, when they jibbed into a brisk wind, the Margarita's main boom and gaff, and this crippled her navigability. Yeah, I'll say. So, because of this, once they got into Holmes Bay, Moore captured a sloop, took off its spar and gaff, and repaired the Margarita. They also took the captain to serve as their pilot, a guy named Robert Avery. So the unit crew, which numbered about 30 Machiavellian guys, they voted in Jeremiah O'Brien as their captain and set sail to chase down. Now, the unity is much faster, and they quickly overtook the Margarita, especially because they were crippled for a time. And the foul mouth packet, that they had with them, you know, quickly, fell behind. Now, historians disagree. Some of them say that both the Unity and Falmouth Packet engaged Margarita. But others say, no, that didn't happen. A historian by the name of George Drisco, he says that the Falmouth Packet either just ran aground or never was able to catch up to. So, seeing the Unity approaching, Moore opened his sails to 
and he cut away all of his boats to try to escape. As the Unity got closer, more opened fire. But the Magius crew was able to avoid getting hit and pulled alongside the Margarita. Wow, nicely done. It took a couple of tries, but they eventually tied up alongside them and boarded. This boarding action was led by O'Brien's brother, John, and a guy named Joseph Gretchel. Now, both sides were firing muskets at each other, and Moore tossed a hand grenade onto them, and, but then he was taken down by Samuel Watts with a musket shot to the chest. This is when one historian, a guy named Roger Duncan, said that the foul-mouthed packet then manages to alongside the Margarita, and both of the crews combined were able to over... But we don't know for sure. So Midshipman Moore is now grievously wounded. So his second-in-command Midshipman Stilling Fleet surrenders. Moore was taken into medical care at Machias in the home of a guy named Steve, who is a nephew of Ichabod Jones, but he succumbed to his wound. There were at least three other members of Moore's crew also killed. Robert Avery also lost his... I'm curious. I thought when you said we don't know for sure when the that second ship, the Falmouth joined up with the Margarita and both crews overwhelmed them. They're like, we think that's what happened, but we're not sure. I was anticipating, and all of them were lost at sea, and so this is the best we could come up with. But there were survivors, so yeah. I'm surprised that, I guess history is kind of full of holes because people didn't write things down or didn't remember to re retell or recall them. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. I guess I'm happy that there were survivors. Uh, I wish we knew a little bit more, with more certainty, about the story. More than likely why we don't know more is because reports might not have been written. These were just militia. This was the beat. Right. So there was less organization, less records. That makes sense. More than likely that's what happened. More than likely it was just the main gist of what happened got out, but not specific. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I mean, when you're at the very beginning of a conflict, you're not necessarily making headlines. Right. And the British lost this, and they were a professional navy. They kept proper records. But mm -hmm. if you've lost the battle, you really can't write down that record into right. your logbook. Yeah. You've just given up your ship. The log goes with it. So what are you going to do? Right. And the captain is usually one that keeps that log, and the captain was shot in the chest. Right. So the remaining crew members of the British schooner was held at Machias for about a month and then handed over to the Massachusetts Provisional Con. There were reports circulated, more than likely exaggerated because that's the way things worked, even now, that they had killed as many as 100 British men. Whoa. Uh, and that the Machias lost uh, John McNeil and James. Three others were wounded but survived. These guys were... John Barry, and he had taken a musket ball into his mouth, and it exited behind his... So he was lucky to have survived that. Say golly. The other two wounded was Isaac Taft and James. So the Machias community is terrified. They expected the full wrath of the British Empire to fall down on them. So they immediately petitioned the Machias Provisional Congress 
guidance, supplies. They were like, we need your help. They organized for the defense of Mach and maintained watches and everything retaliation. They uh, immediately outfitted three of the captured vessels with breastwork and armed them with guns and swivels taken from the Marguerite and changed one of their names. In July of 1775, Jeremiah O'Brien and Benjamin Foster captured two more British. These were the Diligent and the Tatamagush, and they had captured their officers when they came ashore near Buck. In August, the Provisional Congress formally recognized what the Machias what the community, what the Machias communities, and they commissioned both the Machias Liberty and the Diligent into the Massachusetts Navy, with uh, Jeremiah O'Brien as their commander-in-chief, I assume. Okay. A lot of TLAs running around. You never quite... Three-letter acronyms. Oh. So, rumors begin about an assault on Nova Scotia that was going to store stockpiled at Machias. So a British fleet comes in with a thousand men and attempted to take Machia in August of seven. But the locals successfully fought off. Wow. But these rumors, they were only partially true. The idea had been proposed. No planning had actually taken. So during the war, Machias refitted and armed a number of different ships and sailed off looking for the British. Jeremiah O'Brien and John Lambert were both commissioned in the Continental Navy, and the Machias Liberty and the Diligent were used to intercept merchant ships supplying the British in the Siege of Boston. John and Jerry O'Brien, they built a tw- and they began privateering under a American letter of mark. Jerry, he was captured off New York in late 1770, but he escaped from the prison that the British had in the harbor of New York. That's right, the worst prison of the war. And he continued privateering. The British naval command was very frustrated by the actions of Machias and her seamen, and by the use of Machias as a staging point for militia actions in Nova Scotia. Graves more than once attempted to make them stop. He gave commands in 1776 to reduce Machias, and then ordered Sir George Collinger the next year, to go destroy Machias. Okay, what does reduce mean? Because that seems like very close to destroy. That is destroy, it's only more polite. Oh, I see. So when he said destroy... There's more energy and emphasis. He was ticked. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm glad we have manners with, uh, let's just reduce that town. You (laughs) mean wipe it off the map? Uh, let's not be so crude. There was a British officer, they think it was Coloner, who said, quote, The damned rebels at Machias were a harder set than those at Bunker Hill. I would make that, um, if I was a Machias man, I would vote to make that our uh, town quote, like a, this is what's said about us. We're tougher than those uh, Bunker Hill folks. Yeah. So that, my friend was the Battle of Machias. That's good Good to know that the Americans won uh, the first naval engagement. Well, I mean, at that time, the British were all, we can't fail, we're the British. That's right. And then they failed. And they went, oh, 
<laughs> Reinforcements are far away. They went in overconfident, and they got their butts handed to them. So we're going to move on to the Battle of Gloucester. This was fought early in the war at Gloucester, on August 8th or 9th in 1775. So remember when we were talking about uh, the livestock removing, right? Yes, from the various islands, Snake Island and, and whatnot. So on August 5th, the HMS Falcon, commanded by John Lindsay, appeared off of Ipswich Bay. And he sent a number of men on a barge to the shore in search of livestock. This happened lots of different things. A local fa, yeah, a local father. I'm sure he was a father, but a local farmer saw this. And he grabbed a few other local men and drove them off with muskets. When they returned to the Falcon, Lindsay sent it in to investigate Gunnar in the harbor. They found out that the ship only contained ballast, and he continued to cave. And for the next few and of course, started the British impressment of people from the local ports and ships. So on August 8th or 9th, you're not exactly sure, he spots two American schooners sailing for Salem at around 0800. He quickly captured one of them without any exchange of fire, and he puts some of his crew on board it as a prize, and then starts chasing the other one. Now, the captain of the second schooner, he seemed to be very familiar with the area, and he brought his ship deep into the harbor and grounded it near Five Pound Island shortly after 1200. So Lindsay forces a local fisherman to serve as his pilot, and both the Falcon and the prize schooner were led to a anchorage in the harbor. He then puts 36 men onto three small boats, his lieutenant, the three boats, and ordered him to go take that ship. Go hmm. get it. Nice. So among the men that were sent to do this were 10 impressed Americans, including four from this very town. Now, when you say impressed, I imagine it means forced into service? Yes. Not like they showed up with fabulous uniforms and... The people were very impressed. Okay. It's the... They, they were like, pointed at those ten and said, you guys work for the Royal Navy. I didn't think that... So they're at war at this point, right? Okay. Well, I guess, yeah, you show up with a bunch of uh, troops and guns. You can well, do if that. You, if you go listen to our series on the War of 1812, this was mm -hmm. a huge... Yeah. That's... So, the... Arrival of the British caused the town people to raise an alarm, and militia companies started to muster. They were led by Captains Joseph Foster and Bradbury Sanders. These men were armed with muskets and two very old swivel guns. They opened fire from the shore at the small boats as they got near to the schooner. So, in response, the British rode faster. <laughs> they boarded the schooner, but now they are effectively trapped by constant fire from the shore. So Lindsay, he tries to distract the townspeople and fired on the town itself. Oh, that would be quite the distraction. Yeah. And then he eventually sends a landing party to, to burn the... That's an even bigger distraction. Yeah. 
Now, this was unsuccessful. And so the party on the grounded scooter was continually harassed by those on. The lieutenant is now wounded, and he and a few men managed to escape a skiff around 1600. Um, and this means that the Falcon's master is now. The rest of these guys that were left on the ship, which included all those impressed Americans. Oh, man, that, what, that's the worst deal ever. Well, I'm pretty sure once they figured out who these guys were. Yeah, the idea of being impressed was a common one, and they can say, oh, yeah, you didn't voluntarily join up with them, so, yeah, you're, you're free to go. Well, no, no, congratulations, you're now in the continentality. Oh, good. You have experience. Yeah, we could use a guy like you. <laughs> and besides, those guys were probably ticked off that they were impressed in the service anyway and would want revenge. Oh, that's right. That's the best time to recruit. Also, impressed individuals in the Royal Navy were not paid. Oh, really? They were not paid. So, they just... Exp oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. Oh, by the way, welcome to the U.S. Navy. By the way, here's a paycheck. Yeah, you're going to be right. happy. So, uh, let's see. <laughs> so, by 1900, the, all the small boats have been taken. Lindsay then decided to send the prize schooner to go get his men. But uh, the captured crew took this opportunity to overpower the prize crew and took their boat back. Nice. Uh, Lindsay is quoted... After the master was landed, I found I could not do him any good or distress the rebels by firing. Therefore, I left. As you do. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so Lindsay's attempt to burn the town as punishment for resisting him. You know, this was done again l later in other naval battles. Uh, in October of 1775, Admiral Graves ordered Captain Henry Moet on a expedition of reprisal against New England's coastal communities, including a specific target, Gloucester, ah. and cited a number of other justifications. It included Captain Lafitte at Gloucester. And, and this is Gloucester, Massachusetts, you said? Yeah. Okay, because yep. I know there's a couple of Gloucesters around the U.S., so... And I'm sure in the U.K. as well. Oh, I'm sure, yes. So Moat, he chooses not to attack them because he felt that its buildings were too widely spaced for candidates to have any effect at all. Reports are that Moat's only major action was burning of Falmouth. Arson, go ahead and drink. Oh, yes. This is the present-day Portland, Maine. Oh, wow. Uh, this was instrumental in motivating the Second Continental Congress to establish the Continental Navy. That's the Battle of Gloucester. Gloucester. Whatever. I don't know. I lost it a, a little while ago. I I've heard it both ways. <laughs> All right, so that's going to bring us to the evasion of Quebec. Ooh. So we're going to talk about this. Theodore. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on Quebec generally? Hmm. I couldn't agree more. Back in 1775, it wasn't. Well, no, that's true. It was British. Mm, I feel lied to. So, this was the first major military initiative by the newly formed Continental Army. 
So the objective of this campaign was control of the British province of Quebec. And this was actually referred to as Canada a lot. For example, the authorization by the Second Continental Congress, General Philip Schuyler, for this campaign in language that if it wasn't not disagreeable to the and immediately take possession of St. John's, Montreal, and any other parts of the country, and to pursue any other measures in Canada that might promote peace. You know what? You're back in my good graces, Captain. I felt lied to, I was patient, and then the truth came out, and we're all good. It was still Thanks, British. Thanks, man. It was still British. Well, yeah, but it, you said maybe not Canadian. Your opinion was that it was Canadian, and then they got called into question. And then, you know, our relationship was a little dicey there for a while. But now I think we're stronger. We're stronger than we were before. I'm glad we had this experience. Okay. <laughs> the audience is glad, too. I mean, I'll speak for them. You, you do speak for them. Okay, good. And I'm sorry about that. Anyway. <laughs> so the territory that Britain called Quebec was in large part the French province of Canada in 63 when France gave it to the 1760 Treaty of Paris. And this treaty formally ended the French in India. So after the start of the war, the conflict, the British army is surrounded by colonial militia. And in May of 1775, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen is aware that the light defenses and the heavy weapons at Ticonderoga and they lead and capture it. And they also capture Fort Crown. And they raid Fort St. John's. And all of these things were just... So the First Continental Congress meeting in 1774 had invited the French Canadians to join in a second meeting of the Congress to be held in 1775. But there was no response to the first one. They sent that first letter in October of 26th, and, and the second one was sent. You know, there was no reply. All right. So after Arnold and Allen are done, it is, you know, important that they got to hold that area because that is now their defense against British military to divide the colonies. And also, they also, and they also, also, also. Lots of things going on. Also <laughs> is appropriate. They also said that Quebec was very poorly defended. So both Arnold and Allen, they were they had an idea separately, but at the same time, and of the same thing. Let's put an expedition against the Quebec. They both suggested that a force as small as twelve to fifteen hundred men would be enough to drive the British out of Quebec. Now Congress at first they were like, you know what? We don't even need to just go ahead and leave them. Really? Yeah. So this made New York and Connecticut provide troops and material purposes that were you know, just defensive in nature. Now, there was public outcry from New York and across New England that they were like, you can't abandon them. We need to defend ourselves from the lobster backs in Canada. That's right. And that challenged. So the governor of Quebec, a guy named Guy Charlton, he started fortifying Fort St. John's. And he was also trying to get the Iroquois 
tribes in upstate New York to join him. So because of this, Congress decided that a more active role was needed. So they authorized a guy named General Philip Schuyler to investigate. And if he thought it was, you know what, guy? Go ahead and invade. Wow. it's a lot of latitude. Uh, Benedict Arnold, he is passed over for the command. And so he goes to Boston and convinces General George Washington to send a supporting force to Quebec City under Darnold. He threw a hissy fit and went to the big man himself. Well, and uh, did it work? Well, that, that, that should be a lesson to all the listeners. Uh, hissy fits can sometimes work. Yeah. So after a raid on Fort St. John, General Carleton was very aware of the danger of invasion from Americans and he requested reinforcement from General Gage in Boston. So he goes around raising local militias to aid in the Quebec City. So in response to the capture of Ticonderoga and the raid on Fort St. He sends 700 to hold the fort on the Toulouse River, which was south of Montreal. And he ordered construction of vessels to be used on Lake and he recruits about 100 Mohawk Native Americans to assist in its defense. He oversaw the defense of Montreal himself, leading about 150 regulars. He also relied on Fort St. John's for the main defense. The defense of Quebec City itself he gave to Lieutenant Governor Cromont. Correctly or not? If it's a French name, you got to make sure to drop at least two consonants from the end and just not even say them. Pretend like they're not. Cram. There we go. That works. <laughs> so, Guy Johnston is a loyalist and a Indian agent living in the Mohawk Valley in New York. And he's on friendly terms with the Iroquois that lived in. And he is now concerned for his safety and the safety of his family, because he's like, well, those pesky Americans now hold New York. So he is now convinced that he could no longer safely crown business, and he loses his estate in New York with about 200 loyalists and Mohawk supporters. Wow. He first goes to Fort Ontario, where on June 17th, he takes from Indian tribal leaders, mostly the Iran Huron, promises, assists, and keep supply lines and and to support the British in, quote, the annoyance of the enemy. Oh. After doing that, he goes to Montreal, where he has a meeting General Charlton and more than 1,500 Indians. They negotiated similar agreements. And the natives delivered war belts, which was one of their ways to signify that uh, they were ready for service. All right, so most of the, the natives that were involved in these agreements were the other tribes in the Iroquois Confederacy largely avoided these conferences because they wanted to stay neutral. Many of the Mohawks remained in Montreal after the conference, but when it started being uncertain whether the Americans invade, in 1775, most of them just got bored and went home. 
Now, the Continental Congress, they wanted to keep six nations out of the war. In July of 1775, Samuel Kirkland, who was a missionary and influential with Juanitas, they brought a statement from, he brought a statement to them from Congress that, quote, we desire you to remain at home and not join either, but to keep the hatchet buried. So while the Juanitas and Tuscaroras remained neutral, there were some individuals that were sympathetic to the American. Now, so news of Johnson's mock meeting prompted General Schuyler, who had influence, he called for a conference in Albany. And about 400 natives did attend. So Schuyler and other native commissioners explained the issue that were dividing the colony from Britain. They, he emphasized that the colonists were at war to preserve their rights and were not attempting So that means chiefs that were assembled there all agreed to remain neutral. Okay. Yeah, with one Mohawk chief saying, quote, it is a family affair. Yeah. No need to get in, a, in the middle of family business. Everybody knows it's a mistake. And they also said that they would, quote, sit still and see you fight it. They did extract concessions from the American, included promises to address ongoing grievances like the encroachment of white settlers on their lands. Only we know how that went. I'd say is going. I mean, still settling. Yeah. So, um, let's see. We're going to talk about Montgomery's expedition and Arnold's separate expedition next time. Because I believe we are out of time. So after that, we'll be able, after we finish, you know, talking about the the invasion of Canadian territory, mm-hmm. there will be one battle, the Battle of Vancouver Island, and then we're going to talk about the New York, New Jersey area of operation. In any of those operations or theaters, is there a submersible that we're going to talk about? Because I'm still very excited to hear about it. Yeah. So it is still teased. But oh, it's still, man. But it's still an episode... Maybe two away. It You've got depends. me hooked. It just depends on on how long it takes us to. I'll, I'll, get I'll have it. to keep listening. Me and the audience are just gonna have to keep listening. And the submersible, if you would like to know its name, is the turtle. How appropriate! Oh, so at the end of every episode, we honor one of our fallen angels, and today we are going to honor First Lieutenant Todd W. He is from Hampton, Virginia. He served in the U.S. Army, 1st Battalion, 320th Field Artillery Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 101st Airborne Division, stationed out of Fort Campbell. His honors include the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, the Army Commendation Medal, and the Army Achievement. His date of sacrifice was September 9, 2010, killed in action in Kandahar. He was 26 years old. Todd Weaver proudly carried on his family's legacy. His older brother, Glenn, served in the Army during the Iraq War in 2003, and his father, Don, served in Korea's dematerialized zone during the Vietnam War and later in the Foreign State. Both of his grandfathers served in World War II, William Harris in the Marine Corps and Robert Weaver in the Navy. Todd was the youngest of four children born to Don and Jean Weaver in Fairfax, Virginia. Don's career as a foreign service officer gave the family an opportunity to experience 
Because of multiple moves during his early childhood, followed by college studies abroad and military assignments, by the time Todd was age 26, he'd lived in five countries, visited over and stepped foot on five continents. Todd was a standout student athlete at Burton High School in Williamsburg, playing quarterback for the football team and starring on before graduating high school in 2002, Weaver was moved to Virginia's Army National Guard after September when radical Islamic terrorists attacked New York, New York's World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Following high school, Weaver completed Army basic training during advanced interning at Fort Leonard in central Missouri. He enrolled at James Madison University in Harrisburg, Virginia, but his school studies were interrupted in 2003 when his National Guard unit was activated to support Hurricane Isabel Leaf efforts. A few months later, in March 2004, he was deployed to Mosul, Iraq, in support of Op. After his 10-month combat tour, Weaver returned to the U.S. in February of 2005 and transferred to the College of William and Mary in William. There, he joined the Army Reserve Officer Training Program and was appointed Cadet ROTC Battalion Commander. His years at William and Mary were eventful. He studied abroad in St. Petersburg, Russia, and the city took on special meaning when he proposed to his girlfriend, Emma Cloyd, who traveled there to visit him. The two later married and welcomed a daughter, Kylie. Weaver completed airborne training at Fort Benning, Georgia, in August 2007. In May of 2008, Weaver graduated summa cum laude from William & Mary with a bachelor's degree in government. He was inducted into the Pi Beta Kappa Honor Society, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army Infantry. He was deployed to Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, with the 101st in May 2010 in support of Operation Endurance. Recognizing his leadership abilities, 1st Lieutenant Weaver's commander reassigned him to the 1st Battalion's 320th Field Artillery Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, to lead an artillery platoon. His platoon was tasked with, cor- with conducting operations in Arghandabad, River Valley west of Kandahar. On September 9, 2010, 1st Lieutenant Weaver was lost when insurgents attacked his platoon with an improvised explosive. Weaver's daughter Kylie had just... 1st Lieutenant Todd William Weaver was laid to rest with his fellow soldiers at Arlington National across the Potomac River from Washington Section City, Site 918. Weaver was inducted into the Army ROTC Hall of Fame in at the College of William and Mary. A Todd W. Weaver Study Abroad Scholarship was established in... According to William and Mary, the scholarship can be used for an academic program or independent travel related to better understanding other... First Lieutenant Todd W. Weaver. Thank you. All right, X. Get us the heck out of here. Uh, sure thing. Um, let's see. Uh, thanks for listening, number one. I'm really excited to learn more about the American Revolution with all of y'all. And uh, if you ever want to contact us, if maybe you say, hey, wait a minute, my great-great-great-grandfather fought in that, and that's not how it went down. And let me tell you what he said. Uh, feel free to email us. You can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And then uh, we can also be reached on Twitter slash X, or it's either or. The slash means either or. Uh, You can reach us there with the handle at usnhistorypod. Uh, We are also uh, on YouTube. You can listen to us there. You can also join our Discord server. and. 
interact with fellow fans and the both of us. Uh, you can find links to that in the show notes. And let me see if there's anything else. Um, it's everything, Captain? Sounds good to me. Cool. We'll take it away. We wish you fair winds and following. Bye, guys. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 